and welcome to the Midweek Podcast, where we discuss what it looks like to flourish as disciples of Jesus in the COVID-19 world. Uh, Before we begin and jump into our topic today, just a quick note on the podcast itself. We started the podcast back when the COVID restrictions were first hitting in March, and we wanted the opportunity to speak directly into our experience with COVID-19, but we also wanted another touch point as a community. Uh, another joint conversation and joint experience outside of our virtual Sunday gatherings. And as things open up, Most of our small groups are now uh, meeting again face-to-face, and starting this Sunday, we will begin meeting face-to-face in an outdoor space for Sunday gatherings at Audubon Park. And of course, we don't know what the future holds or how restrictions will change moving forward, but as we all begin meeting face-to-face again, we don't have the same pressing need for another touchpoint online, which means that the midweek podcast is likely not going to be a, a weekly podcast moving forward. I imagine there will still be some important issues that we'd like to speak into now and again, but more and more of those conversations are going to be happening face to face as we begin to gather. So um, this might be the last midweek podcast for a while. And what I wanted to do with this episode is to talk a bit about the effect of COVID-19 on the world. Uh, What does the uh, economic impact look like? Uh, What about the psychological impact of a global pandemic or the spiritual impact? Uh, How do we see COVID-19 shaping our world? And what do we expect the post-COVID world to look like? Uh, I'm Matt Deason, and I'm here with Coulter Batterton this morning, and uh, we just want to take a few minutes to wrestle with some of those questions, uh, starting first with economics. Uh, COVID has and will continue to have a deep impact on our world, its economies, its power dynamics, all of it. Uh, So maybe we'll start there with uh, a snapshot of that impact. And um, Coulter, maybe I'll start by just asking you the question just to get the conversation going. Um, What has been the impact so far on the global economy? Mm. Yeah, yeah. Thanks, Matt. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. I think um, all of this, I think, to give a little disclaimer, is going to be pretty speculative um, because um, we're still in the midst of COVID, so we can't really tell um, what the actual effects are going to be. Um, from a global standpoint, um, obviously the world is struggling. Um, the world's biggest consumer powerhouse, the United States, is not consuming as much, um, and the other countries behind it um, in Europe are also not um, consuming as much as well. Um, which is just a problem for a lot of countries. Um, And then you think about countries that are mainly, um, their main economic driving force is tourism. Um, That's going to be very different over the next couple of years because people are going to be um, either afraid to travel or they're not going to have the resources to travel because of a compressed economy in the U.S. Um, I think of places like, um, you know, Brazil, I think of tropical areas, Jamaica, and places, um, even France, which on average has more tourists in its country than its own population, Wow, um, is going to be vastly impacted by this. So um, we'll just have to wait and see. I think we talked about this a little bit earlier, Matt, but economists are a little confused with at least the American economy because we just dumped 2.2 trillion dollars into our economy 
Um, and against all odds, our currency is stronger than it used to be. Um, inflation hasn't really occurred. So um, it's going to be definitely interesting to see how this affects the U.S. and in turn affects the rest of the world. I think it's good to rec. I guess I guess it's good to be on the top. I mean, if the rest of the boat is sinking, the U.S. is definitely at the very top of the boat. So um, it's going to feel those effects a lot less than other places. But um, in terms of global impacts, I think the only place I can speak to is probably China. So since 1974. China has had, um, what would that be, 40 or 56, no, 46 straight years of quarter-to-quarter -quarter growth. So every single quarter, wow. the economy has grown. And this is the first quarter where the economy has shrunk, and it shrunk by 8.7%. I'd have to look up the exact statistic again, um, which equates to about point. Four trillion dollars gone to the Chinese economy in one quarter, um, mm. so that's very um, significant. Um, and there's a lot of other things that are going on in China that will continue to be interesting. I don't know if you want to speak into any of those. Yeah, I mean, I think the first thing that really stood out to me from what you're saying is just for us to recognize as Americans what a privileged place we're in, that our our government can just like print money, cut checks to everybody. And I'm just relying on like college level economics classes and thinking like if you dump two trillion into the economy, the dollar's worth less because there's a whole bunch more dollars there. Mm -hmm. So the fact that the dollar's worth more um, is is personally confusing to me. Um, but just to recognize like most of the world population uh, are living in, uh, if we could generally break up the world between like consumer countries and supplier countries um, all those supplier countries are are often very poor people are living off like a dollar a day um, and they don't have those structures in place you know like the 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 indian government can't just print two trillion dollars and just cut checks to everybody or whatever so um and if they did it would probably really really affect their you know what what their rupees were worth or whatever so it's just kind of crazy to recognize like we were already in a country with tons of privilege with tons of support structure with tons of wealth and somehow we were able to print a bunch more wealth and not lose anything in in the process at least we don't see that happening yet and so just recognize hey we're we really are kind of at the top of the world in terms of wealth and privilege and um, so when we open up the gospels and read we have to read it through that lens of the life that Jesus is calling us to and what privilege we have. And we're all kind of, in my mind, like the rich young rulers who he's challenging in different ways to like, hey, would you would you give up these things to follow me if I asked you to? Uh, and so we just have to like read ourselves into the gospels in some of those positions. Not that he'll ask all of us to do what he did, the rich young ruler, but just to say, um, as we even sit under the teachings of Jesus, we have to like figure out, wait, when is he specifically talking to people like us? Um, and so I think that's one thing I've been struck with is just like, we've, we've had a lot of COVID deaths, which is unfortunate. Um, but when we're just talking about the economy, um, the U S is an incredibly privileged place. And I know a lot of people have lost their jobs and we kind of feel like, oh, we'd certainly like the economy to be stronger and, and more open again. But comparatively, uh, the U.S. Is, is doing very, very well, whereas um, China 
um, yeah, posting its first negative corner, uh, quarter in 50 years. Um, and I think there's been a lot of reports of like Apple and other big companies saying, hey, we put all of our eggs in one basket. Um, and if when things happen like this or, you know, China goes under lockdown or whatever, 100% of our factories are there and that's not good for us. Um, that means 100% of our production stops. And so China, in my mind, has kind of been like the, like the world's factory, like the world's manufacturer. And I, I think there's some inkling that that is beginning to shift where Apple's saying, hey, we'll, we'll keep one factory there, but we're going to move one to India and one to Pakistan and one to wherever else. Uh, and I imagine there are other companies who are going to follow that. And so not only does that have a huge impact on the Chinese economy, uh, but I think it's it's worth, we're not qualified to speculate about this, but I think that that's going to be a true test for their government as well. Um, and being, as we were talking about earlier, just being like a one-party system that has stayed in power uh, in part because they've just been doing well. You know, like their economy has been improving year over year for 50 years. And so you don't really have like any grounds for the population to stand up and say, we don't want this anymore. Uh, even though there's some other things that are very, I think some harsh restrictions that the government puts on people. So it'll be interesting to see how that plays out in the Chinese population. If there's any like sense of unrest or like questioning the one party system. Um, if Because I would guess that the next five to 10 years will be difficult for China. Um, even if they come out with a, a, you know, a cure for COVID tomorrow, I, I would speculate that the US economies and other economies would pick back up again faster than China, uh, where China may continue to, to decline if there's big companies pulling out. And so I think about that even from like the perspective of like the, the, the explosion of the gospel in China and the fact that it's like on pace to have or like the most Christians by number of any country in the world, maybe it's already hit that number, but they're like, they're underground Christians, but they have more Christians in straight numbers than like any other country in the world. Uh, and yet they're all underground. And so the government and the economy and the stability of the government actually become interesting issues when you think about the gospel and the gospel moving forward. And we might see some of that stuff play out uh, in the next five to 10 years. But a lot of the cultural commentators that I uh, respect and listen to have really been predicting that, hey, in the year, this was before COVID, they said in the years to come, like the US and Western Europe are really going to be on the decline in terms of like influence and, you know, world power dynamics and maybe even economies. And, uh, you know, China and Asia and kind of the, the Euro-Asian continent, they're going to be the next kind of center of the world. Uh, and I think that, again, maybe we're not qualified to make these speculations, but it would appear that COVID is at least going to delay that because it's hitting a lot of those countries a lot harder, straight from one end to the other, from like China on one coast all the way to France, you know, like there's this there's this economic impact there. Um, they seem to be getting hit harder. I would just talk to one of my friends, Stefan uh, from India yesterday, and he's been in his home for like months and months. Like most of his friends have lost their jobs. Their economy is just kind of a, a complete mess right now. Um, and you just think of the way that that's going to uh, affect things for years and potentially decades to come. Uh, so economically, uh, we are in a very, very privileged place as Americans. Um, but obviously, this has shaken the entire world economy. 
And one of the things that happened, you gave that analogy of like the sinking ship, like if the we're all connected now because we're all globalized. So if the world interconnected global economy is beginning to sink, well, we're at the top. So like we're not really going to feel that. But there's this why if you picture it like a pyramid, there's this wide, wide class at the bottom, people living off of a dollar a day or sometimes less who are they they're the ones losing their jobs and facing longer um, you know, negative economic impacts. And uh, I think there's, there's, they're predicting that there's going to be um, sort of a major global impact, huge classes of people that are now at risk of starvation as a result of that. Yeah, just to speak on that a little, um, every year, um, the, um, I think it's the United Nations, actually, now that I think of it, releases a, um, a summary statement of kind of the biggest things that are going to be um, kind of challenging the vulnerable populations of the world, um, whether that's disease, um, which obviously is going to be at the forefront of this year, um, and that includes not just COVID, but you know we have AIDS, HIV, um, and a lot of diseases that specifically hit the African continent pretty hard. Um, but one of the things they release every year is a a number of how many people they think will be at risk for starvation. Um, and before, when they released their initial 2020 um, statement, they were estimating about 90 million, um, which is a lot, and, and that's a, a big number. Um, but I think we've come a long way in really starting to um, shore up some gaps. And I haven't got the official numbers, but I think we're, um, we're bringing people out of abject poverty at the fastest rate we ever have in human history today, um, or we were. Um, I think that'll be set back for the next five years, unfortunately, because of COVID. Um, but they released this statement. Um, it originally it was 90 million people who are at risk for starvation. Um, I believe now it's 300 million. Um, wow. And um, that's 300 million people who um, are at risk for starving. And that's not just 300 million people who would lose their jobs or 300 million people who are going right. to have a change of pace. Um, they don't. They don't live in a country that provides social... Um, social systems that help people in need um, in the U.S. for the most part, and there are exceptions, of course, and we want to be sensitive to that. Um, if you lose your job, you get unemployment, um, and if you don't have food, you can get food in in pretty much every state at any time. Um, we live in a very wealthy country where basic human needs tend to not be the biggest problem we see every day. Um, and as a result of that, the United Nations has asked, um, they said they needed $50 billion to, um, just to hit the bare minimum of keeping these people alive. Um, and I think in the last stimulus bill, the United States gave, I think it was $10 billion to it. So um, at least there was some generosity there. Um, the U.S. does, as most countries do, tend to look out for themselves first. Um, so hopefully as new um, as we kind of work through our own issues with COVID, the U.S. can start to think globally in supporting others with their wealth. Um, I don't know if that will happen because it doesn't tend to be at the forefront of politicians' minds, especially during an election cycle. But hopefully um, that problem will be addressed because that is very daunting. Um, right. And a lot more people would die um, than ever would have died from COVID. Right. Um, even Three, if 300 million is mm -hmm. like way beyond any yeah. like COVID projection. Yeah. I mean, that's the whole population of the United States gone. So, I mean, it's a huge number right. um, at risk for um, it, it, death. And that's, um, that's astounding. And it's, it's almost 
hard to picture in your mind that there's that many people who don't have access to, I mean, I can't even picture what that life would be like mm-hmm. to, to not have enough food. Um, like, I, you know, I get hungry after five hours or whatever it is right. because we live in such a, a privileged place. And so it really is, um, I think that that leaves a lot of opportunity for us as Christians to see what our role is in that. Um, and I know that we've supported some people around the world, and I think um, we should continue to do that in supporting the people we know who are struggling with this. With this, And we do know people who um, do struggle with food security on a daily basis. Um, I've met them, and, and I know Matt has met some of them too. And so um, it's, it's not something that is even beyond our own scope. It's people we know. It's very close to home. So... Um, yeah, that's how that's that's about all I would have to say on that. But yeah, I think that's important to just think about if we. I mean, it's it's hard to call it the post-COVID world because we don't know when COVID will actually end or when they'll have a vaccine or whatever it is. But as we think about uh, the world in COVID, the world after COVID, I think the economic uh, impact and hundreds of millions of people at risk of starvation is actually going to be. Um, like if they came out with a vaccine tomorrow, that would immediately be like, hopefully what the world would turn its attention to is like, Hey, part of recovering from this is making sure hundreds of millions of people have food. And certainly we want to play our role in that and be looking out for ways that we can uh, partner with God and what he's up to and being the hands and feet of Jesus and, and making that happen, especially again, recognizing what a privileged place we, we come from. Um, so that's kind of a snapshot of economically how that's affecting the world. Uh, I'm particularly, well, we live in the U.S., so I'm always interested in that. But then also thinking about um, some major changes in China um, and uh, India and um, the ways it's affecting Africa and all of that. Um, so good things for us to be thinking about and praying about. And I think there'll be opportunities. We're already tangibly sending um sending real dollars to a lot of people, a lot of our, our partners around the world in some of these countries uh, and keeping keeping people alive. Um, and we're going to continue to do that. I'm, we've really made a commitment to our partners in the Philippines and in South Africa and some other places and just saying, hey, we're going to we're going to see this through with you guys. If COVID's around for another two years, like we're, we're in like we're going to we're going to see this through. We're going to make sure uh, that you guys are, are fed and can take care of yourselves and your community. And um, there's so many opportunities for them to put Jesus on display where like we can partner with them in sending some of our what we have available to us and our wealth and our prayers and all of that. And then they turn around and we get all of these pictures back of them out in the community uh, serving, you know, their Muslim neighbors or whatever and keeping them alive. And it just speaks such a powerful word uh, about Christ in the world and his love. So lots of opportunities that we're anticipating for that uh, in the months and, and potentially years ahead. Uh, perhaps we could now turn the corner for a moment and talk about the psychological impact of COVID, uh, which is hard to measure. Uh, it's hard to quantify or describe. Uh, I keep saying it, but we're not psychologists. We're not qualified. You know, we're not economists. We're not psychologists. We're, we're none of those things. Um, but at the same time, there's been this very real impact that we can say, oh, it's hard for me to measure. It's hard for me to put to words, but I, I sense how real it is. Um, how do you see kind of some of the psychological impact of COVID in our present moment right now, and then maybe playing out into the future. Yeah. As, as you said, it's definitely a hard one to 
put down on paper or to even conceptualize. I think it's just kind of some general feelings that you and I have talked about and kind of things that we're sensing. Um, and it's, it's definitely made people a little skeptical of one another. Mm, and there's definitely right. kind of a, I mean, everyone is a potential carrier, I guess, you know, everyone is a danger. Everyone is a threat. Um, a lot more than it used to be. Um, it used to be a little bit more of, you know, you looked at someone for the most part and usually unless they're doing something interesting or, you know, maybe that makes you uncomfortable for the most part, you would think, okay, that's just a person walking by me. Um, and maybe we'll bump shoulders. And now it's like, well, maybe if I bump shoulders with that person, they might give me a disease that I've never had before. And that seems to be making a big impact on the world. So, um, what that does, and I think you'll speak to this a little bit more later, is it just, it isolates us. Um, right. And it takes us from, you know, being very communal. And yes, we're an individualistic culture, but um, we still crave human interaction because mm -hmm. that is, I mean, that's really one of the root things that makes us human is how communal we are. Um, right. And the way that we spend time with one another and love one another. And um, I think it's just... It's just making things interesting, to say the least. It's you, just weird. It is weird. The, like It's just a weird world to live in. I think there's a lot of damage that's been done. And we tend to talk more about like the economic impact or like these tangible things of like, oh, these stores are closed or this person's lost their job. But I don't think there's ever been an event that has like psychologically impacted the entire human race mm -hmm. the way that this is. Uh, because all of a sudden across every country and culture and city in the world, we're training ourselves to isolate. We're training ourselves to hold others at arm's length. We're training ourselves to sort of like be skeptical of one another. And yeah, like you were saying, you kind of like see other people as a threat. And so even now, like things are, are beginning to open up and you're moving toward people again, but it's this weird thing of like, how close do I get? Um, there was almost this sense through shelter in place of like, I'm holding my breath and kind of like trying to get through this socially, but now it, there's not a clear release. Mm -hmm. It's not like we're at the end of a war or whatever, where you're just like, Hey, the war's over. And well, and even war in wartime, people come together like never before. There's this like increase in like social bonding and unity in a culture. And this is like, it's just such a weird time to just like have psychologically be walking around with this. Okay. Now we're meeting each other. But um, I move toward people. How close do I get? What's the risk? Um, and you've got passionate voices on either side. Do I hug or do I not hug? Um, do, will, I, will I offend someone if I do? Um, can When I meet a new person, do I shake hands with them or not? Like, it's just weird. Uh, and so I think that there's this, like, we're, we're training the global population to be sort of like antisocial and isolated and uh, almost subconsciously you begin seeing other people as uh, as a threat or as something to avoid uh, as a potential, everyone's a potential carrier, you know? And I think with that, there's sort of this mental withdrawal that can go along with the physical withdrawal. Uh, it's almost this like heart posture, psychological thing that begins to, to set in. And I've even seen it reflected in 
things like digital correspondence. Uh, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who uh, say like, people aren't texting me back. People aren't emailing me back. Uh, and I wish I had the full insight uh, and, and ability to explain that. I mean, we've got nothing else to do. And if you had asked me, I would have anticipated an increase in digital engagement through shelter in place and everything. And instead it's gone down. Like people were more likely to text back or email back before COVID hit than they are when they're sheltering at home and they have nothing else to do. And you know, they saw the text message. And so it's just this really, just that in and of itself is a fascinating phenomenon. I, I was tempted to do a separate podcast episode just on the phenomenon of digital withdrawal. Uh, and like, why, why is this happening? Why, are we not like using the platforms that we have to engage with one another? Uh, but I think rather than do an entire episode on that, I can keep it short and sweet and just say like, answer, answer your emails, like answer your text messages. Like it's like, I don't know what that is, but to me it goes back to this like psychological harm. And so for me moving forward, I think we haven't really quantified or talked about the psychological harm enough. And I think there's going to be a real healing that needs to happen um, as we begin meeting together face to face, as we begin re-socializing, but not totally re-socializing because there's still this weird tension in the air. Uh, I just think there's like going to be levels of uh, layers of, of healing that needs to happen psychologically for I guess the human race at this point, I assume everyone around the world is struggling with the same, like trying to embody uh, antisocial patterns. Yeah. And I think, I mean, it really does, as you said before, we're, we're kind of in what I would hope is kind of the middle end of the COVID restrictions. Um, obviously there's a lot of speculation about resurgence and all that stuff. And we won't get into that, but it seems like it could go one of two ways. Um, one, um, people become less social than they were before because of this. Or two, people become more social in that they've been so deprived of social interaction um, that they really crave it in a way they haven't before. And they've realized that that's something that's really important to them. Um, it seems like the former is the one that's been played out so far. Um, but... I don't know what else could happen. I, I, I read an interesting article about um, some data that was polled on how people are consuming the media right now. It was part of my journalism program. I did a little research project on it. And um, first off, people are looking at kind of the strangest things you would think. They're, they're pretty much just watching YouTube videos and not even engaging with the world, um, which is an interesting phenomenon in that. Um, but... Um, it broke it down in, into a bunch of different generations. And for the most part, people weren't um, calling one another. Um, they weren't spending a lot of time texting one another. They were mainly just watching movies and watching videos or consuming other forms of media. Um, but it was all individualistic. Um, so I don't know if that'll continue to stay the same. But, I mean, COVID is going to have an impact on every single part of life. Right. There, there's not anything that's going to be untouched. It's economic, it's um, psychologic, it's it's going to be spiritual, it's going to be emotional. Mm -hmm. Everything you can think of, it's going to change in some way, um, either for the better or for the worse, or maybe it won't change at all. I guess, I guess it might not change. That seems very unlikely. Um, but it's definitely, it's just an interesting time. I don't know if we've said that, you know, two or three times, but it's just 
it's a weird time. And as we come out of something that's really weird, things that were normal are going to seem weird because weird has become the new normal. Right. So um, we're going to have to learn how to do life normally again um, over the months and possibly years to come. Right. Uh, probably not years. I don't think so. I'm optimistic. So. Right. I, I'm always optimistic as well. But I think part of it that's hard, at least in this moment that we're living in, as things are beginning to open up again, is that there really isn't a clear end. Mm. You say like we were sheltering at home. The coronavirus is still like just as present as it was before. But now we're meeting together and then just trying to like navigate all of that. I think psychologically, it, there's just like this extra layer of weirdness, uh, whereas in a lot of other events, there's like clear points of release. There's clear like end dates. Uh, and until we have that, I think there's going to be kind of a psychological burden and and effects that we have to live with. Um, but ultimately, I think even just meeting face to face together in a park this Sunday, I'm just anticipating that being a healing event uh, that just begins to mend some of the the brokenness that we've been carrying. So, um, yeah, I guess along with that, uh, we can we can turn the corner one more time and just talk about this from one more angle, which is spiritually. Um, how do we anticipate COVID nineteen? You said it's going to affect every you know, and I agree, it's going to affect every single aspect of who we are and the way that we live and the way we relate to one another. And, you know, you drop like a large rock in the pond and this ripples just like echo and echo and echo. Uh, so long after, you know, the rock has passed, there's going to be these ongoing, you know, 9-11 changed the world. It just changed the dynamics of the world. And this is going to do the same thing. Um, but one of the ways that it's, you know, because it impacts everything, I think it's it's uh, worth contemplating the effect that it's going to have spiritually on the world. And I mean, just to cut to the chase, like we're straight just praying for revival. Like we're praying that the world is brought to its knees and stirred toward God in a fresh way. And I think that all across the world, the things that we became accustomed to are being kind of stripped away um, or our foundations are kind of being exposed and brought out into the light. And so for most human beings, you're forced to answer in this time, like, what do you hope in? Um, what were you, what was your hope in? Um, because, and if it's not in Jesus, you're probably realizing your source of hope is probably being challenged right now. Um, and realizing, oh, this thing that I put my hope in can't really deliver real hope in moments of, uh, trials. And yeah, I really, I really liked what you said there is that, um, yeah, a lot of the the things that are underneath people's lives, really the foundations, if you want to say, philosophies or big ideas that um, really moral truths that guide people's lives are being questioned right now. Hmm. Um, one of the sad realities of postmodernism and relative truth is that it's not very helpful in, hmm. in giving you a grounding principle because if you say everything is true, then, well, what's grounding me to truth? What's grounding me to reality? And I think right. if, if, if everything's mm -hmm. true, then in a sense, nothing is true. Like exactly. Like nothing can actually be the truth. Mm -hmm. It's just, um, and I think that's, that's, and that's just not very helpful. Um, because if you're looking for something to give you stability, um, it's not very helpful for someone to say, well, everything gives you stability because if everything gives you stability, then I guess nothing really gives you stability. So, 
Um, it is going to be interesting to see. And I think there is such an opportunity um, because when people see that their foundations aren't very sturdy, um, the natural inclination is to look for a sturdier foundation. Right. Um, whether they actually are thinking about Christianity is beside the point. But if you're questioning your own existence in the world, because everybody asks themselves that question, whether they want to or not, because mm -hmm. some of the distractions have really been stripped away. I mean, you think of the things that people really dedicate their lives to for happiness. It's it's money. It's it's going places. It's spending time with people. You literally can't do any of those right now. Money is tight. You can't travel and you can't spend time with your friends. You can't go to a bar. You can't go to a club like everything that a lot of people really find their identity in is being stripped away. Um, and so you you have to ask yourself that question is, well, why am I here? What's what's the point of all this? At the end of the day, I, like it doesn't matter why am I here? And it really gives us and and the gospel such an opportunity to go to people and say, hey, there's a reason you're here. And it's more than just partying on the weekend and working during the week. Right. It's you have a purpose and you have an opportunity to make an impact. And I think, you know, we mentioned this a little, uh, I was talking to you about this earlier, Matt. I think this lack of a grounding principle has really exacerbated some of the social unrest we've seen in the U.S. in the past two weeks. Um, and that there's just been a lot of people who don't, they, they see that what happened to George Floyd was evil. Right. But they don't know what to do about it. Right. They just know, hey, I know that's wrong because I can see that that's wrong. Right. And all I know what to do right now is to go march with these people or to be upset. And they don't have an outlet for saying, okay, I see that that's evil. This is the solution. And I think that's where it is helpful to see people in your life who have a grounded principle, who we as Christians have the opportunity to see what happened as evil and then we know what the solution is, which is the kingdom of God. And we talked about that last time in our last podcast in that the kingdom of God needs to break into our country and into our yeah. world. Um, wow. And we are, we're desperate for it. We're desperate mm. for God to come and have a fresh stirring. And um, I have a quote I wanted to read about revival real quickly. Um, if I could just pull it up. It's from Charles Spurgeon. I shared it before. Um, and he says, Oh, Men and brethren, what would this heart feel if I could but believe that there were some among you who would go home and pray for a revival of men whose faith is large enough and their love fiery enough to lead them from this moment to exercise unceasing intercessions that God would appear among us and do wondrous things here as in times of former generations. And I think that's really what we need to do is to mm. get on our knees right. um, and get on our knees and say, God, we know you've done these things before. We know that you're the answer. Um, can you do it again? Will you do it again? Will your yeah. kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven right now? Amen. Yeah, I, I love what you're saying. I see both of those things so powerfully at work. One is that life has been so disrupted that I think most human beings on the planet are forced to ask, what do I put my hope in? Um, like, what do you have to say in the face of death? Mm -hmm. um, a lot of a, a lot of worldviews and a lot of individuals don't have an answer. Mm -hmm. um, and 
And of course, Jesus and the resurrection, it gives this powerful, powerful answer that we have uh, in the face of death. And so you have that that cuts across the globe. And then, of course, here in the U.S., um, just uh, the the racism um, and the, the tension and the social tension and all that that is stirring up. Um, I see both of those things as potentials to provoke us toward revival. Uh, I see that I see those as forces that can prime the culture and kind of the secular culture can be primed to receive uh, the kingdom. And those of us who are followers of Jesus, we, we should be taking this posture of lament and repentance and mourning with those who mourn, feeling just the the weight um, and uh, evil and shame of just racism in our country. Uh, so mourning with those who mourn, standing in solidarity with those who uh, are under uh, the, on the wrong side of racism. I guess there's not a right side, but really under the oppressed side uh, of racism and allowing ourselves to feel the pain uh, of our black and brown brothers and sisters in America and what they experience on a daily basis. So there should be this element of, of mourning and lament. Um, we should allow ourselves to sit in that and feel the weight of that and even confess the ways that we've contributed to that, uh, either actively um, or through our apathy and our silence and our um, almost complicity with just the way things work in the world. Um, we've allowed this uh, to this evil to survive in our midst, and it's just not okay. And so as followers of Jesus, we have to be stirred toward this heart posture of lament and sadness and repentance and uh, an openness to gospel-centered reconciliation. And when I when you list those things, I think that's the most appropriate response to the moment that we're living in. And we have to start with that. But then you open up books on revival and they say like, that's how revival starts. Like you get the church on their knees with this repentance, crying out for more of God, and and God breaks in in a fresh way. Uh, and so I think like COVID-19, that was already like enough in my mind to like stir us toward this idea of like revival and global revival. I think you throw on uh, this extra layer of um, race and racism in the United States, and it should just be one more thing that's provoking us that direction where we're saying like, Jesus, we need you. The only way that we heal, the only way that we move forward uh, is if, you're, if your kingdom comes and, and your will is done. And so most of you know, we've been um, fasting uh, every Wednesday since the restrictions hit and um, and every Wednesday we've been fasting and then released a midweek podcast. So this is the last Wednesday that we're kind of calling the community to fast. Of course, if you found this practice helpful, you can continue to fast and and some of us will. But this is the last time we're kind of calling the community to say, hey, today we're all going to be fasting together. Let's cry out together for this. Um, let's be on our knees and allow ourselves to feel uh, the weight of COVID and all of the people that it's it, it's affecting and all the people at risk of starvation. Let it let us feel the weight of uh, our black and brown brothers and sisters in America and what they experience on a daily basis. And let us just drive that and let those things just drive us into the presence of God and fuel this hunger and this passion and this fire to see God, we want to see revival. We want to, I think of Jesus' prayer where he says like, Jesus, I, I, I pray our Jesus doesn't say that. He says, Father, uh, you know, I, I pray that, I don't pray that you would take them out of the world and all of its troubles, but that you would keep them in the world and you would make them one. And if you make them one, 
in the world, then the world's going to see uh, that, that I'm alive and well, that I'm back from the dead, that I've come to rescue the world. They're going to see that um, through unity in the church. And what an opportunity for us to see God just break through um, in, in a radical, beautiful way across our country and across our world. And so we, we're living in a fascinating time. There's so much that, uh, so much weight to the things that we're going through. And obviously we should be feeling this sense of lament and repentance. But for me, it's mixed with this hunger. It's mixed with this sense of hope and expectation and saying, Lord, what could the next um, year, five years, 10 years look like for planet earth uh, and the kingdom of God? And I think we're just ready. I'm, I'm just so um, ready to see God break in uh, in a new way. And I think that that should be uh, at, the, at the heart of the church, at the heart of our, of our prayers as we continue to journey through this stuff. Yeah, and I think just as we, I think we'll get ready to wrap up here pretty soon, but um, just kind of a closing encouragement, um, and I think we mentioned this in the last podcast that I was a part of. I don't think that was the last podcast. I might have mentioned that earlier, but um, when we think about big issues um, across the world like poverty or racism or um, praying for revival even, those things sound very daunting um, and they sound overwhelming. Um, and that's, that's because they are, they're very, very big issues that go back for eons and eons. Um, but I would just want to share one story with you about a revival that was started in a place called the Hebrides. Um, and it was started from, um, two elderly women. They were sisters that were both in their eighties. One was blind. And I think the other one was mostly deaf or, or was like, couldn't walk. So definitely not people who, who you would think would be like getting ready to start a revival that would change an entire region that we still talk about today, but they just got down on their knees in prayer, prayer and just prayed and prayed and prayed and prayed. And then a pastor showed up to their house and then they prayed with him and then they told him to go get more people. Um, and because of their faith, um, God moved an entire region just because they decided mm. to get on their knees and say, you know what, God, we don't know what the answer is. You know what the answer is. And we know that we can ask you for anything and that mm. you promise to move. And so I think my encouragement would be is, yes, these things are really big and they're really scary. And they're some of the big powers and principalities in the world that we're dealing with. But at the end of the day, our God is bigger than that. Um, and mm. he asks us to ask him to do great things. Hmm. Um, and that, that is what our response needs to be, whether it's to racism or worldwide starvation or whatever it is. The first response is, Lord, we recognize there's an issue. We recognize there's brokenness. Can you come and make a difference through me? And how hmm. can we do that? Wow. That's awesome. I'll end with this uh, and then we'll pray. This is Second uh, Chronicles 7 verse 14. Uh, God says, If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear them from heaven and I will forgive their sin and I will heal their land. Um, so that's what we're doing. We're coming as his people, the ones who are called by his name. We're going to humble ourselves. We're going to pray. We're going to seek his face. We're going to turn from our own wickedness. 
and the ways that we've been part of the problem in the world. And God says, I'll be right there. I'm going to hear, I'm going to forgive, I'm going to release, and I'm going to heal. I'm going to heal your land. And that's what we're praying for right now is for God to come and to heal our land here and around the world. Let's pray. Yeah, Jesus, we um, come to you uh, in the midst of all of this uh, turmoil, Lord, in the midst of all of this tension, uh, in the midst of a future that um, I guess the future was always uncertain, uh, but now we're aware, we're keenly aware of how uncertain the future is, Lord. Uh, We don't know what to anticipate, um, and yet we know that whatever the future holds, you'll be there, Jesus. You will be there with us every step of the way in whatever the future brings. And so as we um, look at the ways that COVID has affected our world, as we contemplate uh, the tension in our nation right now, we just say, come Lord Jesus, uh, come Holy Spirit. And would you, as we humble ourselves, as we confess our own sin, as we seek your face with expectation, would you come and, and forgive and cleanse and heal our land, Lord? We need uh, psychological, um, spiritual, emotional uh, healing uh, on so many levels for so many issues. And we want to see revival here, Lord. We want to see revival in our lifetimes, in our time, in our place. Would you strip away the last things that are still distracting us from that, Lord? And would you call us powerfully uh, into your light, into your throne room, into the place where our eyes are wide open and we see uh, what we should be praying for. So we commit to coming to you now, Lord, today as we pray, as we fast, in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. We want to be the people who are called by your name, who come and seek your face, and we want to experience something in our city, in our country, uh, on our planet that that we've never experienced before. Uh, Lord, would you stir this and and use it to advance your kingdom powerfully around the world and give us hope, Lord. Would millions and millions of human beings uh, be given not just food to survive 2020, but hope that's going to last into eternity. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.